Today, we welcome Nancy Bilya. She hails from the Midwest and received her degree from the University of Michigan. I'm especially delighted because I am um, uh, a resident. I grew up in Michigan, and I like to promote my fellow Michiganders. Uh, she has um, been on the staff of InStyle, Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, and Ladies Home Journal. She is currently the executive editor of DuJour Magazine and lives in New York. Uh, the Tapestry is her third book in the Joanna Stafford series. Her debut, The Crown, and follow-up, The Chalice, were both praised across the spectrum of reviewers, from um, Library Journal and, uh, and Booklist to Parade and O Magazine, as a, a combo of Dan Brown and Philippa Gregory. Um, she joins us today to discuss her third novel, The Tapestry, and I hope you join me in giving her a warm welcome. Thank you so much for that introduction. And you didn't mention the Michigan uh, link. I am so happy to hear this. I still, I left Michigan in 1983, and I still have the Michigan accent, people tell me. So it doesn't go away. So I have to say I am extraordinarily honored to be here in this beautiful building and in this room, uh, a place that is devoted to literature, art, history. I love those things beyond measure as well. My husband and two children as well, but yes, I am uh, delighted to be here. So I have written three books, The Crown, The Chalice, The Tapestry. They are, each of them, mysteries. They have suspense, but in my efforts, I wanted them to be um, a woman's story. Joanna Stafford is a Dominican novice, and she is living through a time of enormous, enormous tumult. <laughs> the, the dissolution of the monasteries, it's sort of a dry phrase, but it is a very conflict-driven and fascinating time period. So in each of the books, she does go through uh, a, a very dramatic adventure. But being a uh, history fanatic <laughs> since I was about 11 years old and loving the 16th century uh, in particular, I did a, a great deal of research and I wanted to uh, understand this time period. I went to England. I picked a Dominican priory in Kent that really existed. It's in the town of Dartford, which is a short distance from London. And there, uh, of course, because of the dissolution, it is dissolved. <laughs> there is nothing there, but there's a gatehouse. The gatehouse was built on the rubble of the destroyed priory. And it was a beautiful manor house built for one of Henry VIII's lighter wives, Anne of Cleves. So more on her later. But um, art is an important part of these books. My father was a watercolor artist. I grew up with a, a dad in the basement studio. And... I love the decorative arts and fine arts, and I have put them into each of the books and most of all into the third book. So we'll start with my friend, Hans Holbein the Younger. He was born in 1497 Augsburg, which is now the third largest city in Bavaria, but in his time, it was a imperial city in the Holy Roman Empire. So there's a lot of clues there too what his uh, background was like, his early life. He came from a family of artists, which you probably figured out from the younger part. His 
uncle, father, brother, they were all artists. And to be an artist in that time was probably even more difficult than now to make a living. And his father and uncle made a lot of their money through painting altarpieces, church windows, because, of course, religion was extremely important, medieval time. Uh, I think that it probably was evident pretty quickly that Hans was, uh, the younger, was extraordinarily talented. Um, I wanted to, uh, there's a Peter Aykroyd quote about him that I think captures it. Um, he illustrates his sitters in the light of some sudden but characteristic emotion, as if he had caught their thought on the wing. And this was such a departure from the stiff medieval uh, figures. Um, I think that he probably started this while he was still in Germany. He was also doing woodcuts. Dance of Death is an amazing set of illustrations. You've probably seen some of them. I find them kind of... Uh, I'm obsessed with them in a good and bad way. They give me nightmares. <laughs> I mentioned one of them in the tapestry. It plays a small role. Um, but to England. So why was he even in England? Well, he was ambitious. Uh, there was a lot of... Uh, the religious wars in Germany were killing people. The Peasants' War, so forth. Uh, he, I think, was a Lutheran sympathizer because he did create a woodprint for a Luther Bible. But, of course, he had to keep it quiet. Just like now with politics, you have to keep it quiet. So when he finally made it to England, it was on the recommendation of Erasmus. And Erasmus was the great humanist, and he was uh, adored throughout uh, Europe. And if you liked Erasmus, you needed to get a portrait of his. Uh, you needed to purchase it, and Holbein was cranking these out. And so Erasmus recommended him to Sir Thomas More. So he went to England, lived in Sir Thomas More's household and uh, did a famous painting of his family and others. He got going. He wasn't yet in the king's employ, but uh, he did uh, make a great impression. Then he went back to Basel, which is where his wife and children were. But by this time, uh, the, there was the beginning of the Protestant feeling that art should be destroyed. Some of his work was destroyed. I think it was not a good place to be an artist, so he went back to England. Thomas More was dead by that time, uh, so his next patron was Anne Boleyn. He always, like many people who need to make a living with their art and their craft, and you know you have to switch to the winning side. <laughs> so he he did paint her, we think, but Henry VIII had paintings of hers destroyed after her execution. So there is one sketch that is believed to be of her that he did. Uh, he also designed a chalice for her. He did a lot of uh, beautiful decoration. Then she was executed in 1536, so he switched again to my friend Thomas Cromwell, uh, who had, if you've seen Wolf Hall and read the wonderful Hilary Mantel books, you know all about that, his relationship with Anne Boleyn. He definitely led the investigation against her. Whether he masterminded it or Henry VIII did is still a subject of debate. So this... Painting, I think, shows Holbein's artistry. You can see a bit of emotion there. Um, what's interesting about this, just a side note that I find fascinating, is this painting hangs in the Frick collection. It's not in England. The reason is that uh, a 19th century industrialist, Frick and Carnegie, they made so much money together, and they made it in a kind of a nasty way, <laughs> fighting with uh, the unions, amassing their uh, millions 
calling in the Pinkertons. So then, uh, separately, by this time they hated each other, Carnegie and Frick went to New York City, Car and then they became deities of the city. Carnegie with Carnegie Hall, and Frick with the Frick Collection, he became a great art collector. And he had so much money, and in England, some of the people who owned these paintings needed that money, so he was able to go over and buy this painting and Sir Thomas More and some others and hang them in New York, where you can see them now. And in fact, I have a friend here <laughs> who uh, uh, we went to the Frick Collection together and uh, looked at it. It's in the same room as the Sir Thomas More Holbein, and you've got to wonder what they would think of that. Okay, so this is probably the painting of Holbein's that people are most familiar with. After the death of his third wife, Jean Seymour, Henry VIII needed another wife. He only had one son, uh, but a lot of women by this point were leery of him, rightly so. And so he had a bit of a hard time finding that fourth bride. He was by this time uh, also uh, not only had a reputation for being um, a deadly husband, but was sick um, and paranoid. He was able to uh, send Holbein around to uh, do portraits of various candidates. Now, Cleves was a duchy uh, that had strategic importance, and her brother needed alliances, so he said, sure, paint a portrait of my sister. This portrait went back to Henry, and based on this, he felt that she would be a great fourth wife. She came to England, and the minute he met her, he wanted to send her back, literally. He looked for ways to get out of marrying her. And to this day, people can't figure it out, because to us, she doesn't look bad. Uh, and people then said that perhaps uh, Cromwell, who wanted a German alliance, pressured Holbein to make her look better than she was. But Holbein wasn't punished by the king, and he continued to paint. So it's a mystery. I think it all comes down to chemistry, right? This is um, not one of his uh, realistic depictions, but this is the great mural of Whitehall. Holbein did this. Henry VIII and his daughter Elizabeth were masters of image. They would be able to teach people about marketing today, I think. Uh, and so Holbein helped create the image of Henry VIII that still predominates today. Uh, hand on the hip, legs spread apart, defiant, strong. The woman opposite him is Jane Seymour, the one who gave him the son. She was dead when this was done, but he's still, she was his favorite, so he wanted her next to him. That's his father behind him and his mother over there. Um, the mural was nine foot by 12. Um, it was burned in a fire. It doesn't exist, but there are many um, people who did copies of it when it still did exist. It, it, was, it was burned in um, the reign of, uh, I think, uh, William and Mary. Uh, so Holbein did murals, he did paintings, he earned 30 pounds a year. And at that time, that was a good living. So here we come to the tapestry, and that all right, so first off, we have to talk about what a tapestry is. I'm sure everyone here knows, but just to be sure, because sometimes I've, I saw a historical uh, movie in which they had a tapestry on the floor. <laughs> they would never be on the floor. They're not carpets. And I'm not one of those people either, like who see the white queen and have a heart attack because they spotted a zipper. I'm not one of those. But you would not put a tapestry on the floor. 
And they did help keep the rooms a little warmer, but principally they were to convey magnificence. Uh, that was their, their whole purpose. And when Henry VIII ascended to the throne, his father, Henry VII, uh, inherited some from Edward IV. He had a few hundred. When Henry VIII died, there was a famous inventory in 1547. He bought 2,200 tapestries. He spent a fortune. And they think that a lot of the money that he spent on the tapestries he came, from, uh, came to him from destroying the monasteries, where about a million pounds went into his treasury. So there's ironies abounding because uh, a lot of these tapestries, this one is uh, one of, this is a copy of one of two that are now in Hampton Court. This is uh, the Triumph of Hercules from his Triumph of the Gods. Uh, when there's a recent tragedy in Brussels, uh, it was a personal... Uh, I thought it was as horrific as everyone else, but also I had done a lot of research into Brussels because Brussels was where all these tapestries, well, there were some in France and Italy, but most of them were made in Brussels. And the city was devoted to the highest standards of tapestry production. It was really amazing. They think that one in six men who lived in Brussels in 1540 worked in a tapestry workshop. There were dozens and dozens of them. And they took a really long time to make. They... Uh, they would take months just to do one because of the standards. They used uh, silk, wool. There was gilt and uh, gold uh, threads used. What, uh, what's interesting about this is that Henry VIII uh, commissioned the triumph of the gods at a time when he was very ill and very obese, and he was uh, in the middle of his fifth marriage to teenage Catherine Howard. He weighed, they think, about 300 pounds at this time. And when this tapestry arrived, it was in early 1542, which is when his fifth wife was in the tower for adultery. And, uh, and yet, I think that this is how he saw himself as Hercules. Uh, I think that his tapestries were often meant to convey uh, uh, his godlike um, image. He was the head of the church, and it was extraordinarily important to him that it convey that. Um, this is the, the most expensive one is uh, devoted to Abraham, and they believe that he paid 2,000 pounds for it. And remember, 30 pounds a year was an income for Holbein. So they think that that's the equivalent of two warships that he paid just for one. I don't, we don't know how, what he paid for this one. So I just wanted to share with you... Um, the amazing Raphael. He was um, the fa uh, favorite artist of Pope Leo. Now, Pope Leo was a de Medici who passionate about art and uh, the glory of God as shown in architecture and art. Of course, this was the same time as Luther, <laughs> so you see there was a problem. Uh, he excommunicated Luther right before he died. But Raphael was an a fantastic genius. He's one of the, the trio with, with right with uh, Leonardo and Michelangelo. But he was the man who came up with the. They call them. This is where the word cartoon came from. That was the the word uh, originated then, which was a drawing that would be then used for a tapestry. That's the origin of the word. So he, this was actually made into a tapestry for the Sistine Chapel. Uh, so what they would do is they would take these cartoons, and they would take them to the uh, 
the workshops in Brussels and they would tear them into strips or use them whole and they would follow these to create the tapestries. So, but, but one of the interesting things about this is that Henry VIII's favorite tapestries also came through Raphael. <laughs> so even after he had broken from Rome, uh, executed many people, including Sir Thomas More, who adhered to the Pope, he himself favored tapestries that uh, Raphael was the original designer for, and he was the favorite designer of the Pope. So you think these things get complicated. Um, one large tapestry, right, five yards by eight yards, that would take five weavers about eight months. So um, you could see the, the, the standards. They had um, uh, guilds that were policed, and if people would go in and do spot inspections, and if they saw that somebody had done a little painting, because of course it's hard to do a face on a tapestry to have the control, you don't have the brush, they would be fined. <laughs> you know, that's, it's just to me uh, really interesting the uh, the standards uh, that that uh, existed in, in 1540. Um, so, what I wanted to do here was just share my my love of some of this this art and beauty. Um, the way I used it is that um, Holbein is a character in the third book. Uh, Henry the I, my main character is fictional, but uh, she interacts with uh, people of history, um, which was enormous fun. And I took it seriously in reading original ambassador letters and documents to try and make my decisions about what I thought these people actually were like. Uh, now the the books themselves that I, I uh, the first one took me five years, The Crown, working on it on and off while I was a magazine editor. And I didn't have an agent. I had no idea if anyone would want this. Um, it was a labor of love. Uh, I went through various workshops, uh, sharing it with people. Uh, some said they loved it. Some said, why don't you just write something in the modern era? <laughs> but, you know, I said, I'm going to keep doing this. So I did uh, find an agent who, who liked it and was able to, uh, to sell it. So then the second one, uh, I had a contract to do that one right away. And then the third one came a little later. But uh, in each one, uh, there is a tapestry element. Uh, there was no tapestry production that we know of in England until the reign of Elizabeth I. So, but that's what we know of. I've taken my own uh, license a little bit because there were Flemish and French nunneries in which they had looms and made tapestries. So I decided in my Dominican novice, they also were making tapestries. And my character, uh, Joanna, loves uh, to do it. It was, a, it was an art. It was extremely difficult and extremely challenging. And of course, if you were good at it, uh, extremely lucrative. So after her her uh, priory is destroyed. Um, what actually happened to the monks and the nuns when their monasteries were uh, surrendered? Um, some of them received small pensions, some didn't. Some became uh, Protestant uh, ministers. But if you were a nun, your options were very limited. <laughs> the king uh, supported legislation that put through the an act that said that anyone who had ever taken a vow of celibacy 
as a monk, friar, or nun could never marry. Now, I, who knows why he did that? It seems, but he was a contrary person. <laughs> who knows? So you, you're perhaps you're a middle-aged woman. You've been a nun or novice since your teens. You now have no home, and you can't marry, even if you know you found someone who you'd wish to marry. Perhaps you could go live with relatives. Uh, there was very little employment for women at this time. So, you know, it was terrifying. There was one uh, woman, uh, uh, not in Dartford, but another Abbey who sent, who refused, you know, you got the cues pretty clearly that you had to surrender <laughs> because the uh, early on there were some very grisly executions of those who resisted, and that was very effective motivator for people not to resist. But this one woman who was an abbess was determined to fight it off as long as she could, and she wrote letters directly to Cromwell. I've done nothing wrong. There is no corruption here. You can't find it. She just kept resisting and resisting, and they were very frustrated with her, and finally the pressure on her became so much that she uh, resigned. Another nun was made abbess, and uh, two months later they did close it, the woman who'd had the post for two months was given a pension, and the original abbess got no money at all and died shortly after, destitute. So you see, it was, uh, um, there were about, about a thousand nuns, many more monks and friars. So one uh, note about the Dartford nuns is that um, I read a lot of books about nuns, and I watched a lot of films. Uh, I didn't really know much about nuns when I decided to make a nun, my main character. Uh, I had never met one. So I just really absorbed all I could find out. And a lot of that, there's a convention. First off, a lot of people told me if they had a nun as a teacher, the nun uh, hit their hand or something like that. So there was some fear. But uh, I saw in a lot of the movies, there was an assumption that the women didn't really want to be there. They were, uh, it was a last resort. Uh, they couldn't get a husband. Their families shoved them in. And from what my research tells me, that probably that was the case somewhere, but in many, I really do not feel that it, in this period many women went into the nunneries because they had no option. They had a calling, and in some ways, especially in Dartford, there was more independence there than there was anywhere else. The prioress was a landowner. She managed the almhouses, which are like, you know, were the sort of the homeless shelters of the 16th century. Uh, she uh, was uh, very literate. They had, uh, the, the daily life was difficult. You didn't get much sleep. Uh, you had to go and pray, chant, sing pretty much every few hours. However, uh, there's a lot of longevity in these abbeys. So even though it sounds really rough to us, uh, vegetarian, plain food, not a lot of sleep. Um, and, uh, but they lived longer than a lot of women who are outside of the prior. I find that interesting. But what happened in Dartford was, okay, so the real women were driven out, and four of them found a way to live together. One of their brothers helped them. And to try and keep their calling going, I find that so interesting. They didn't want to stop, and there was no more worship of the Pope. They didn't have the money to leave. Not many people, they say, why didn't they just go to France or someplace where there still were Catholic orders? That just wasn't very easy in this time. You really needed a lot of money and a lot of connections. You can't just knock on a door and say, I want to be a nun here. It was, it was very difficult to <laughs> pass all of the um, uh, necessary rules. But what happened was they lived together for a while. And then what happened was uh, 
Queen Mary I, came in and tried to reverse the Protestantism of her uh, younger brother and some of the laws of her father. And she brought, she brought back some of the uh, priories and abbeys, including the one in Dartford. So the women, you know, this was quite a while uh, after the original closure, more than 10 years, they came running back. They were very happy, and they moved right back in. <laughs> and they uh, practiced their faith again. Then what happened was uh, Mary died, Elizabeth came in, and they were all uh, evicted yet again. And so uh, Mary's widower, Philip, always felt a lot of concern for the nuns, the Benedictines and the Dominicans. He personally paid for a ship to take them to the Netherlands. So that's not, most of the, it's interesting when you look back, uh, when I started this journey, I was a passionate fan of Elizabeth and I still think she's an amazing person, but you know, it's complicated. When you, uh, it's easy to look back now and see Bloody Mary and feel that she's a hateful person, but you, it's very difficult because you have to look at this from the way they would look at it in their time. And it really is, in some ways, it's very unfair to, in the year 2016, look back and say, you know, what you did was abhorrent because you have to. I mean, this is before the Enlightenment, before the idea of what a, a human life was worth. Okay, so, the nuns. Uh, I just love that Raphael painting. So, I could look at it all day. That's one of the reasons I love being here. There's so much great art. So, what I'm going to do now is just read a couple of uh, passages from my book, and some of the pictures and some of what I said will kind of inform it. The first passage is a... a about one-fourth of the way through. Uh, in the tapestry, against her will, pretty much, she's uh, wanting to live a quiet life in Dartford. She's summoned because of her tapestry skills. Because, of course, who's the man who had the mania for tapestries in England? Henry VIII, who is actually, um, in my books, is her third cousin. The Staffords were a real family. You've probably all uh, seen or read Richard III and the Duke of Buckingham. He was a Stafford. They were a doomed aristocratic family. They uh, always made the wrong choice. <laughs> All of the dukes were either killed in battle or uh, beheaded. Um, so I put her in that family uh, intentionally because I think it's an interesting family. So uh, in the tapestry, she's been summoned to Whitehall because of her tapestry talent. And uh, things, of course, go uh, very wrong almost immediately because it is a suspenseful book. So um, I've got, this is, the book uh, begins in April 1540, which is an extremely tense time. Henry's married to Anne of Cleves. He's not consummated the marriage. He would like to get rid of her, but politically, it was much easier for him, as you've probably all noticed, to get rid of English wives. <laughs> but when they have international connections you can't just chop them. So you have to uh, <laughs> go through a divorce, and there's a lot of pressure. So he was, at this point, getting all of his uh, uh, people lined up to figure out a way to divorce her. But he was uh, already in love with Catherine Howard, coming up wife number five. In my books, Kat, uh, the Howards and the Staffords were related, were very close, and uh, Joanna already knows Catherine. Uh, and likes her. She's an orphan, needed friends. Uh, my depiction of Catherine is a little bit different from other people's. Okay, so uh, Catherine has met Holbein, and Holbein is sketching 
uh, Catherine, and Joanna is, is part of this. This is part of her uh, desperate attempt to uh, protect Joanna's uh, purity from you-know-who. So part of that is to distract her and to have her portrait done. All right. It was the end of the third day that Catherine posed for Holbein in his gatehouse workshop. She'd left already to see her dressmaker while I remained to help the court painter as I'd agreed. Catherine loved having her portrait done, even if it was a drawing rather than a painting. Holbein drew on a paper tinted a faint pink. His tools were a row of chalks, black, gray, red, and shades between, and I sharpened them to his specification. I wanted to be sure that the artist saw Catherine, really saw her. She loved clothing and jewelry and gossip, but there was much more to my friend than that, and so I pressed it. You do perceive, Master Holbein, that she's not the sort of girl who would serve as a mistress, I said. Well, do you think that mistresses are cruel and terrible people, he responded. In my experience, most of them are quite kind. I must have shown by the look on my face how his words hurt. For Holbein said, come, Joanna, we'll have our cake and wine now. The treats he offered me every day should not have been enough to cure me of my melancholy. But I had to admit that his light brown cake, dense and sweet, sweeter than anything I'd ever tasted in my life, and his strawberry wine were delicious. We spoke of nothing of importance, not of the fears I know that he harbored of losing the king's favor, and with that his pension, nor of my fears for the lost virtue of my friend and my own future trapped to this palace. I was beginning to understand Holbein's strange life and the shifts he had to make. When I said goodbye and left his workshop, it was much later than my usual time. The sound of the crowds outside the gatehouse had died away. All those petitioners so desperate for the favor of Thomas Cromwell had gone home. By the silence inside the gatehouse, it seemed that all who carried out tasks in those rooms had left too. I passed no one on the third floor passageway leading to the winding stairs. I realized this was the first time I'd been alone anywhere since Thomas Culpepper delivered me to Catherine's room five days ago. Promise me you'll never be alone, he'd insisted. He was the one who found me, who knew that a young man dressed as a page had struck me and tried to drag me into a room until I fought him off. Culpepper wanted to take me straight to the sergeant-at-arms or even the court steward. With some difficulty, I persuaded him not to. For me, official questions are dangerous. Since then, I'd kept the promise to Culpepper without thinking because in Whitehall, one is rarely alone. It's a palace crowded with courtiers and clerks and servants, everyone from Thomas Howard, third Duke of Norfolk, to the girls who pull weeds in the ornamental garden. At least 400 people lived there. And every night, I slept in Catherine's rooms, woken up time and again by the cries of the bargemen on the river outside her window. I was moving down the gatehouse stairs between the third floor and the second, when I heard a soft footfall on the stairs above. Oh, it made me smile. What exquisite timing. I realize it's unwise to be alone and seconds later I'm pursued. Well, of course, this can't be the case. I glanced over my shoulder. If this were a typical staircase, I'd be able to see someone. But because the stairs were winding and dimly lit, there were no fixed candles on the wall, I saw no one. I continued to the second floor, determined not to give way to my nerves. I didn't hear the steps anymore. I stopped abruptly, and I heard two more steps above, and then a silence, as if someone ceased moving, poised for what I would do next. I felt the sweat begin to trickle down my back below my woolen dress. Through the window, the last fading rays of a gray-orange dusk illuminated the space. Before me stretched this long passageway that was as empty of people as the second floor. Master Holmine must still be above in the gatehouse. 
If I screamed, I was sure he would hear me. But would he be able to reach me? I forced the ghoulish thought from my head. No one was following me. This must be nonsense. I stepped closer to the wall and peered up, craning my neck to see, once and for all, if someone was following me. I saw no movement. I'd just begun to turn my head back around to continue to walk to the next level when a dark form streaked across the landing, heading for the stairs, coming quickly. I didn't scream. I was flying. I hurtled down the stairs, my throat closed in a sort of strangling panic. I hit the ground floor, and I ran for the doors connecting to the main palace. A light shone in my eyes as I slammed into someone. He was a servant holding a lantern. What are you doing, he cried as I fell to the floor. On the stairs, I managed to choke out. Is someone after you? I'll have a look, he said. The servant strode up the steps, holding his lantern high. I finally rose and stood on the ground floor waiting, rubbing the elbow I'd hurt. See for yourself, he announced. There's no one here. I crept back up the stairs and stood next to him, straining to see as far as the light would permit. He was right. Whoever had followed me, who'd waited just above me, inches away, was gone. All right, so that is a suspenseful part. And now, about five chapters later, uh, I'm going to read uh, a section that uh, brings in the king himself. Uh, he has asked her to do an inventory of his tapestries in Whitehall. There was a real inventory in 1540 in Whitehall, and I decided to make it Joanna's doing. <laughs> it's fun to find these little facts and then employ them. She is reluctant to do this, but as you can imagine, there's no saying no. Okay. The next day, the day I was to present my inventory to the king, was hotter than the five days of the joust. The night before, I'd been stifling with air as thick as if a thunderstorm threatened, but lightning never split the sky. I had lived for three weeks in the palace of Whitehall without a drop of rain. I climbed the steps to the part of the palace housing the king's privy chamber. Richard, my servant, carried the book, his face eager. I wished I could share his enthusiasm. To reach our sovereign, we needed to walk through the presence chamber. I was inside this room a week ago, examining the tapestries on the wall. The most notable feature of the room, though, was a throne rising on a platform. The king did not sit on it, but yeoman of the guard stretched on either side as if he could return at any moment. Sir Anthony Denny appeared with a guard and beckoned for me to follow him to the next chamber, the innermost room. When Richard started to follow me, Sir Anthony shook his head. I would have to go alone. Give me the book, Richard, I said. To my dismay, my voice cracked on his name. Bearing the book before me like a sacrifice, I followed Sir Anthony into the privy chamber. It was a long room that glowed with an unearthly light. The walls and ceilings were painted gold. I took a few halting steps into the room and froze at the sight of a mural painted on the wall. It depicted the royal family, nearly as large as life. Next to his third wife, Jane Seymour, the muscular king stood tall, hand on his hip and feet apart, staring in defiance. Sir Anthony Denny cleared his throat. I looked past him to a group of men clustered at two tables. Three young men rode in open books with furious speed. I assumed they were royal secretaries. At a separate gilded table sat the King of England. He was dressed in his customary finery, cloth of gold and jewels, but exhibited little of the bravado of the man painted on the wall. The light pouring in the window revealed a tired, bloated face. Thomas Cromwell stood at the side of the king, as always. A stack of letters curled atop the table. Cromwell pointed at a sentence in one letter and murmured something. Sir Anthony glided over to the table, bowed, and gestured toward me. 
Welcome, Cousin Joanna, said the king. We welcome this reprieve, and we understand you've been diligent. I curtsied and approached. Cromwell said, shall I review this book and note the most salient points? No, no, said King Henry. Nothing is more important than our tapestries. The room fell silent as the king studied my inventory, his small bloodshot eyes traveling up and down the columns. When he reached the bottom of the page, he slowly turned it, and I noticed for the first time how swollen red and cracked white his fingers are beneath his gold rings. A sight made me feel rather sick. It was like opening the door to an exquisite cabinet and discovering a shelf of rotted cheese. I looked up to catch Thomas Cromwell studying me with the same contempt I always inspired in him. A Dominican novice, anyone who took monastic vows, would always be anathema to him. His skin was grayish-white. Cromwell was suited for rooms just like this one, deep inside the palace, the coiled center of power. Cousin Joanna, what does this mean? The king's puffy finger pressed down on a phrase I'd written. As I came around the table, I saw it was a description of the fall of Troy tapestry in the great hall. I read aloud, lower edges are soiled, perhaps smoke damage, smells of food. You personally bore witness to this. Yes, Your Majesty, I based all of my notations on what I saw, but in the case of the fall of Troy, I was already aware of its state. How is that possible, asked the king. My first day at Whitehall, when I walked through the great hall, I stopped to admire it, and I noticed its state then. The king took not one or two, but three deep breaths. Soiled, he roared, his spittle flying across the table. Our tapestries are soiled. I'm sorry, Your Majesty, I said. He gave no sign of hearing my apology, which I offered to quiet this outburst, not to ask forgiveness. I wasn't aware that I committed any wrongdoing. No one else reacted, though the secretaries did stop writing. Thomas Cromwell and Denny said nothing. Cromwell, this is the last blunder I will tolerate by Moink, the king shouted. He's a careless fool. He should on no account be sent to Brussels to purchase the triumph of the gods. Joanna will go. Go to Brussels? This was impossible for a dozen reasons. I said, I, I cannot deprive Master Moink of his livelihood. The king said, this is not your doing. You serve our will, do you not? You agreed to do that at Winchester House. Thomas Cromwell's lips curled with distaste at the mention of Winchester House, which was the residence of his enemy, Bishop Gardner. Yes, sire, I did. However, there are no howevers in our court, he said. Make the arrangements, Cromwell. The king picked up another letter. The secretaries began to scribble again, and Sir Anthony Denny gently but firmly took me by the elbow to steer me out of the privy chamber. Okay. <laughs> so, that is... Uh, two selections from the from the tapestry, and um, thank you, thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs>